As we come back together this morning, we'll be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 2, this being Epiphany Sunday. And uh, this, uh, it's hard to really call it a series per se, but we are, are utilizing the readings from the lectionary, which in this season and through January connects us with the reality that we are a part of a bigger church, that in the midst of all of the division, in the midst of all of the theological differences and practice, uh, practice and worship differences uh, or national origin differences that, that mark the separate uh, congregations and, and, uh, and denominations in our country, the reality is that there is one church. And uh, the way in which we're reaffirming that is taking the readings that are read most broadly throughout the church around the world, sort of the agreed upon uh, historical lectionary. These readings have been read for, for many, many years and honed over uh, centuries to build into the rhythm of a Christian believer the realities of life in Christ. It wasn't meant to be a way in which one could achieve greater religious points by following the lectionary, but actually at its best moments, created for the idea that as God's people, we might read the same texts, reflect on them together, and as we then have fellowship throughout the rest of the week, we would, from one parish to another, be reflecting on the same passages and the same truths of Christ and have something to share with our brothers and sisters as we fellowship with them. There is a wonderful unifying reality of the lectionary, and it does create a rhythm of life centered around Christ, uh, which is an advantage. And uh, we started with uh, the new year back at the beginning of Advent, and we reflected on His first coming and His second coming and now as we enter into the Epiphany season, we reflect on the implications of His kingdom, the implications of all of the promises and hopes that had been so pregnant in Israel's existence about being God's people to be a blessing to all the nations, that the light might shine and that all might be drawn to the brilliance of a kingdom of grace and mercy, of love, the characters and ethics of our King. And so this morning... We read this famous passage. We've read it quite a few times over the last few weeks. It, it gets sandwiched in with traditional Christmas readings. We will uh, again look at this passage, this uh, passage in Matthew chapter 2, where the wise men come uh, at some time after Jesus' birth, uh, having recognized the light coming into the world. So let's put the text in front of us. Uh, Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, Where is the king? To be born in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But, to, but you, Bethlehem in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out when exactly the time the star had appeared. 
He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we enter into this most dangerous time of the service, Lord, where people speak, we have listened to your word, we have sung your word, and we ask, Lord, now as we reflect on your word, that your spirit again might guide and encourage, that truth might be spoken and whatever is not true, Lord, protect your people, protect the preacher, that your people might be built up in the good news of their king. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, showing up to a place where you think there should be a party and there isn't one, or going to the wrong place uh, after uh, a particular celebratory event to the people who are less excited about what just happened, it's just an awkward moment, right? Just imagine uh, that you're sitting around in uh, 1483 and you're in Rome. You're, this is, seriously, this is the Pope's name. Sixtus the fourth. You're a Pope Sixtus the fourth, which sounds contradictory. And you're sitting there, you've just built the Sistine Chapel and it's gorgeous and it's beautiful and you're delighting in it and you're just, you're excited, the schism's over. And some people from the Orthodox Church come strolling through and say, hey, that's so exciting. We heard that the one has been born who would bring healing to the Roman church and would drive out the false teachings about things like indulgences and bring reformation and healing has been born and we have followed his star and we assume that he'd be in Rome. No, he was in Germany. But if Pope Sixtus had heard that, chances are he would have wanted to find out where Martin Luther was. He was born in 1483. Or perhaps uh, you're sitting in, in the United States, you've just sort of started this new country, and it's 1809, and you're Madison, and somebody comes in uh, from the Ethiopian church and says, uh, we've traveled far, and we're so excited. Uh, please tell us, uh, where is the one who has been born who will bring an end to this great scourge of slavery? We are so thrilled. Who is the leader, the king, who will do this? And Madison has to explain they don't have kings. And then we have to figure out that Lincoln is somewhere out in Illinois and doesn't even know that he's going to be president at some point. Right? It wouldn't have been terribly exciting in Washington in 1809 for the birth of Lincoln to be celebrated. It wouldn't have been terribly exciting in Rome in 1483 to be excited about the birth of Martin Luther. In fact, it was very unnerving to the powers that be. And had they known that one was born who would shake the very foundations of their institutions and nations, they might have been as tempted as Herod to see if they could nip that in the bud. 
the declaration of a great king being born who will break the foundations of earthly power and structures is no less threatening in Herod's day than it would have been in the medieval church or in Washington in 1809. Because it brings transformation and it upsets all of our understandings of how things should work. This morning we're going to talk briefly about the king himself, his coronation, and then the commissioning. First, the king himself. Uh, What we have here is a fulfillment of this amazing passage we read in Isaiah, where one who will be born, all of Israel had an expectation of a king being born. In fact, uh, the more we now understand about the first century, the more we know that they were looking for a Messiah. And not just an earthly Messiah. They were looking for God to answer their prayers for the healing and release of Israel, which they always understood had a material and a spiritual reality. How could they know they were forgiven as a people if God didn't bless them with a Messiah? They wanted to see the relationship restored between Israel and her God, and the Pharisees in their best moments were driven to create in that culture something that would allow for and draw God back into the temple and into His Shekinah glory presence among His people. They longed for a day when God would dwell amongst His people again in the temple and they knew the Messiah was the means to it. A new king. And of course, as we know more and more about Herod, we know that he desired to wear that mantle. Even though he'd been propped up because of his relationship with Caesar Augustus, he'd been useful in some wars, he'd been given this backwater to reign and to rule over, but he was, even though he was a Grecian Jew, he understood these histories. And you don't become a successful leader if you don't know the times you live in. And Herod worked hard to improve upon the temple as a sign and a symbol of his own spiritual authority as well as his earthly authority. And so he was a king trying to establish himself in the line of great Jewish kings. The problem was it was more in the line of Saul than David. More a king like all the other nations, using brute force and fear. Yes, grabbing hold of the religious uh, trappings but bending them to his own needs. Again, remember how Saul in his best moments did all right, but at the same time, he used religion as a tool like every other king. So when Samuel was late and they needed to have a blessing before a big fight, well, Samuel didn't show up, so Saul went ahead and did it. And of course, that went poorly. Religion and faith are not a means to maintain power over the masses, though it is tempting and often for a short time useful. What you have in the opposite of David and the kingship that Jesus comes through is one who comes in service and humility. David was never allowed to defend his own honor. He was not allowed to touch Saul and he wasn't allowed to defend his honor. His job was singularly to defend Israel and her people. And so for decades, he runs around Israel in the Holy Land, fighting with the Philistines. It's an odd story. We all know it's odd. But when he gets to a moment 
We all know this story, at least I reference it a lot, where he could maybe just once take out his frustration of being treated like a brigand and uh, unpatriotic and a coward, and Naboth disrespects him. He's going, well, this guy isn't Saul, technically. And Abigail rightly reminds him, no, your job is to care for Israel. God will defend your honor. And then David wants nothing more than to set up a temple in Jerusalem and for the best of motivations, and he desires and longs to build a house for God even as he himself has a house, and God will not allow him. He even breaks up the rhythm of the institution in such a way that it falls to Saul, his son, I mean Solomon, his son. There is a way in which that is to show that David is not the be-all, end-all. That there is a separation of roles and times. Why? Because God delights to be the king, even as he uses humans as his administrators. That Christ and God, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, however we want to talk about God's engagement with his people at that moment, God is king. So a true king, following the line of David, will represent his qualities and his ethics. And what we know is that unlike a king like all the other nations, David comes in rather odd package. He ends up being an amazing soldier and a powerful man and a poet and, and, and brilliant and fallen. But he's the smallest and he's the youngest at the time in which he's anointed. God delights to use smaller things, broken things. We reflect on this all the time. He comes from an unexpected place and a non-powerful family. And so is it a wonder that we see again Jesus born, yes, in the line of David, but this is a king born in humility, not in the place of authority and power, not where normally somebody would show up to say, okay, well, the king has been born. You must be excited. If you read uh, Middle Age, uh, Middle Age, Middle, Middle e Medieval History, I'm Middle Age, so most of my life is now Middle Age History, but Medieval History Man, French people, when they got a Dauphin, which is like their, their Prince of Wales, man, they threw parties for weeks. I mean, it's not surprising. When an heir to the throne was born, everybody celebrated. There would be dynastic continuity. There wouldn't be a civil war, which was an upside to business and peace and prosperity. And so the continuity, and you'd go to that great empire's capital city to celebrate and it's not unsurprising then that these wise men following this star would have imagined that all of Israel would have been looking for and recognized that a king had been born. But the way in which God's kingship works is quiet. It does spend an awful lot of time in the wilderness. It spends time out of power, at least in an earthly sense, and yet it does mighty things. It breaks the power of those who are trying to subvert and subject God's people to power. The Philistines are driven back by David. Even when he is not the king, he breaks their power ultimately. He is, becomes a type 
of what Jesus does. And when He seems like He's in the wilderness, think of what our King does. He's baptized. He goes into the wilderness, which is certainly a picture of Israel's 40 years in the desert, but it's also a picture of David's time in the desert and in the wilderness. And what happens? Jesus defeats the enemy. He's tempted three great temptations, all of which center around earthly power versus the dependent power that one has to rely on. Instead of taking authority for himself, he defers to his heavenly Father and he wins the great battle in the wilderness against Satan before he ultimately defeats him on the cross. He comes from the outside. Our King comes from the outside. There is no thing that would draw us to him in our natural human views of power and authority and possibility and prestige. He's going to flee to Egypt because unlike us, there is also a way in which earthly power recognizes that when a king is born, whether it's in a far-off place, one who can upset the status quo, that's a threat. And whether we perceive it or not at the moment, the leadership of the world certainly does. And Satan did not sit back, but used his tool, Herod, to attempt to kill that which Satan knew well would be his undoing. To nip it in the bud. A king announced is a king who needs to be removed. So we have a king, a king who is a threat to earthly power, a king who comes from the normal ways in which God works, which is to undermine the ways in which human power is uh, understood. And he comes from the wilderness. And even in the wilderness, he is setting things right. And then as he comes into the promised land, he does battle all the more. But much like the Prince of Wales or the Dauphin, there is a time before the full coronation. He is a king coming. He is a prince born. And the kingdom of God is coming. But we know a worthy king by his own efforts in his time of growth and study. And what we see in Jesus is a king who learns well from his heavenly father the calling to be a royal in the ultimate and truest sense of divine kingship. We have a Jesus who ministers throughout the Gospels in all of the ways in which we would hope our leader would care with the poor, with those who need healing, with those uh, who we fear he contends and shows no fear. He gathers to himself all manner of people, from the wealthy to the poor, from the powerful to the ostracized. They all find comfort with Jesus, right? That's the whole point of things like Nicodemus and Zacchaeus and the woman at the well. Samaritan. Highest power and authority in the Sanhedrin. Rejected turncoats and tax collectors. They all get gathered together. No one is left out in the retinue of this king. 
And He builds them because of His character and His love and His mercy, not for His sake, although He gains glory for it, but often for their sake. He pours Himself out. And that leads to His coronation. And His coronation in Matthew, and these things are tied so brilliantly together by the author, is the the opening and the closing of His Gospel is this coronation, of course, is at the hands of a pagan, or at least the pagan king's representative. And he's a pagan king's representative and Pilate who's warned, be careful what you do. His wife, remember, in that amazing passage says, I saw, I had a dream. You should not get involved with this man. But earthly power and arrogance moves him forward and he coronates him with a crown of thorns and he raises him up to his throne on a cross. And nothing makes sense. It is a coronation unlike any other. And yet, what we hear Paul say later, of course, is this glorious thing, which is because he set all of the earthly notions and even some of the heavenly uh, accoutrements to the side, his greatest glory was the cross. The greatest power of God, the the reality of our King, His coronation, His enthronement after three years of preparation, 30 years of life and ministry. His coronation, the coronation of the King happens on the cross. That His kingdom might be saved from its own self-destructive tendencies. Again, not a king like all the other nations who simply take from their people but a king who gives everything he has to his people. And that is the light that shines. That's what transforms. That's what draws the Gentile to us. There's another way to run a country, a people, a religion, a faith. It has a completely different structure, which then we take and apply in our being sent out as ambassadors of the king. The end of Matthew, of course, Jesus who is raised before He ascends to the right hand, before He comes in His ascension passage in Matthew 27, 28, 28. We all know the passage, Go therefore into all the nations, making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The King tells us that our job is now to be ambassadors, to proclaim that great reality of a kingdom set forth in this world so that all might see the glory and the beauty of our God. So the questions on the front of your worship folder is really, how do we embody in ever greater degrees as a community of faith these things that draw the Gentiles to Christ? Those things that mark out the difference of our king and his kingship. How is it that our lives begin to, in ever greater degrees, recognize the difference between earthly power and authority and our own slavish desire to have a king or a ruler or a pastor like all the other nations? One who uses the things of this world to show the strength and power of God. It's just so easy. I'm drawn to those who are successful and power and eloquent in my line of work. 
And we often find that they are as fallen and broken as I am. Now, that's not talking about where they go to heaven or if we can ever find perfect pastors. But my stars, when we idealize and lift those men and women up into positions where they are our earthly kings that we follow, how often we find ourselves led astray. When we desire peace, and a measure of security within national borders, whether it's the church in Russia, whether it's the church in China, whether it's the church in the United States, being drawn to leaders who can and will preserve a certain status quo and peace, the good old days that we long for and are drawn to, we are still tempted in every way as the church to look for religious and political leaders who are much more like Saul than they ever are Jesus. And to recognize the epiphany to the Gentiles is that there was a new form of kingdom, new ethics, new structures, new hopes, new dreams. And those dreams drew in every desperate person in the world. Because Christ in and of himself, as we read in Hebrews, suffered the temptation of all of those things and knows our frailties and weaknesses and therefore could draw all those who were frail and weak to himself. He doesn't draw the strong. The righteous don't need a savior. But he came to build a kingdom that would transform the world, an epiphany and a light that breaks all human understanding of how things get done. The question is, as we head into the year, how will things get done? God is doing. We delight to be a part of it. May we be encouraged in what God is already doing in and through us and you. And may we always be willing to ask the question, would we be excited? Would we even know if he was born? If someone were to come and announce the good news of one who would shake the very foundations of our realization of earthly power, would we celebrate or would we be as troubled as Jerusalem? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be gracious to the preaching of your word. Lord, Lord, you bring light and life and joy. And we ask that we might bask in that in such a way that we would see more clearly and be seen more clearly as your people. Lord, it's all we desire in our best moments, and it's what you desire for us. Make it true in us. By your Spirit, amen.